all the living beauty you've ended. That's silly. What difference does a few specimens make to a whole species? Be careful, it's very rare. Let it go. You're joking. Don't do that. I may never get another one. me haven't you hey everybody welcome back to uncanny cinema all right we are looking at a horror thriller uh this time around we're looking at 1965's the collector uh this was directed by william wyler uh and it uh he he was a you know long-standing director in hollywood um and some of his notable credits are he got best director for Best Years of Our Lives, Mrs. Miniver, and Ben-Hur. So he won Best Director three times. Uh, he also directed such films as Wuthering Heights, Roman Holiday, Funny Girl, and many others. So he did, he, if you look at his credits, he had, he had tons and tons of movies. A lot of them I have not seen personally. Um, I mean, Ben-Hur, I would say, is probably the most notable of the things he worked on. I mean, that, I think, uh, one of you boys might remember, I think is still tied for, like, most Oscar wins, um, like, like in a single, you know, single film. I think it's like that and, like, Return of the King and maybe something else. Uh, maybe, like, Titanic or something. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Ben-Hur is, is, is a great film. Um, and those others I mentioned were all very big in their day. Uh, Roman Holiday is a really solid romantic comedy. If you've never seen it, Audrey Hepburn is incredibly fucking adorable in it. So uh, you should watch Roman Holiday. Uh, but yeah, so those are some of William Wyler's credits. He was not a horror director, um, but for some reason, I mean, this isn't explicitly horror. It's it's kind of more of a thriller, but you know, definitely has elements of that. Um, but yeah, it's it's still quite different from the things he usually directed. So it is a, it's a little unusual that he would want it. And he actually, I read, uh, he chose this over the Sound of Music. So he turned mm-hmm. down the option to do the Sound <laughs> of Music. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not a big Sound of Music fan myself, but it is obviously like a huge musical and like a, a, you know stage musical, and has become like a beloved film. So it is surprising that he would have turned that opportunity down. Uh, for this much smaller film. And then the film itself, The Collector, is based on the novel by uh, John Fowles. Um, and he had uh, various other credits to his name, but I, I, I mean, he was like a popular novelist of his day, but I, I haven't read any of his works. And then as far as the cast goes, um, it's a very limited cast. We're basically locked in with two people. There's a handful of other people credited, but they're mostly like on screen for seconds to maybe a minute mm-hmm. or something. So it's really just like two people for the duration of the, all this. It's Terrence Stamp, uh, who plays Frederick Freddie Clegg, and Samantha Egger, who plays Miranda Gray. And um, <clears throat> Terrence, uh, Samantha Egger, I didn't recognize uh, from anything, I don't think, or at least I don't recognize the name. Um, I can look here in a bit. Uh, Oh, it looks like she was in The Brood. Uh, I do like The Brood a good deal. Um, there you go. Yeah. And uh, it looks like she was in a number of things, but I, I don't particularly recognize her, but I'm sure, yeah. I, I'm sure I've seen yeah, her in yeah. some other stuff. Um, but yeah, and then Terrence Stamp. Oh, she's uh, in Hercules. She's in the animated Hercules. Oh, the 90s one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As okay. Hera. Oh, okay. 
And then Terrence Stamp uh, is uh, English actor, um, you know, very talented English actor who's been in a lot of stuff, but probably most well known to most of you, I would say, uh, as General Zod from Superman and Superman 2. Uh, great over-the-top performance as General Zod. And then he was leg- later the like most boring man in Star Wars as Chancellor Valorum in, uh, in <laughs> Phantom, Phantom Menace. Uh, they cast Terrence Stamp, who's great in stuff and can has such like fucking fire. And yeah. they just cast him as just this boring bureaucrat who like walks around and like loses his job eventually. Uh, yeah. so, uh, <laughs> gets like, gets like bamboozled out of losing his job. Oh yeah. Like without seemingly knowing what the hell was going on. Yes. Um, but yeah, some other ones, uh, I mean, if you look him up, uh, I mean, he's in last night in Soho, which is a great movie. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen it, the recent one. Um, so he plays like an older version of a character that we also see in flashbacks. He's great and creepy in it. Uh, he was in the movie The Limey in the 90s that was Soderbergh, I believe. Uh, yeah, so Steven Soderbergh did that where he was like an old gangster kind of like going back, like getting revenge on somebody or something. It's been a long time since I saw it, but that got him some uh, good notice at the time. Um, I will say like, uh, has anyone ever seen him and Malcolm McDowell in the same room? <laughs> because I get that mixed up constantly i wouldn't be surprised if they've been in something together um but uh adventures of priscilla queen of the desert he was also in that um so that was one of his more noticeable notable roles i think but uh yeah no i'm i'm always glad to see terrence stamp pop up in things and uh i would say he's good in this uh but yeah not a lot of background things to share for this one uh so we'll just dive right into it with our cast so i'm back here with the revenge of 90s boys uh, this is not a 90s movie, as I said, 65, but I bring them on the podcast from time to time just to look at some different things. And so uh, this one seemed like it might be up their alley, possibly. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we've got uh, Fabs joining us here. And uh, the last time he was on the epi- on an episode was, I think, back around Halloween when he was on Freaks. So uh, goobble gobble to you, Fabs. Goobble gobble. Glad to be back. Well, glad to have you. And uh, we also have Steve returning, who's uh, who's been on a number of them uh, since Halloween with some uh, other people. And so uh, Steve's here to talk about uh, The Collector, a movie that's not, uh, you know, something completely horrifying for him. He's often put on episodes that are just uh, yes. utter dog shit, and he lets that be known. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate, you know, it's, it's funny, you... you locked me you unlocked the dungeon you keep me in and let me out for this special occasion to talk about this movie so i it's a little bit of a psychotic thing you did but i appreciate you letting me out for a few hours to stretch my legs and talk about this movie yeah well i mean it's it's like if you have like cattle you have to let them graze that's right exactly Yeah. yeah you've got what people don't understand is you've got all of your rotating cast of people for this show locked away and you You've got well, us all unless he wants you to be a, like, a, like a piece of like a Wagyu podcaster for him where you just like just all fat, no muscle. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we've gone yeah. down this road six minutes in, seven minutes in. <laughs> yeah. um, these comments will be remembered and there will be punishments put out for all three of you. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> no gruel for you. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah. So, like I said, not really any background stuff we can go into. Uh, we can talk about the plot um, and a couple other things. Um, but I can, uh, you know, one of these boys can dive into it. But uh, first off, before we go into that, uh, our just standard, uh, what do you make of The Collector? I liked it. I I think uh I think it's like it's certainly not like um missing those like sort of typical things you get from movies in the 60s where occasionally there's like really theatrical performances at times especially like in scenes where there's like a struggle or like heightened emotion where like you know uh Samantha Egger just like throws herself around a room and is like oh you know that kind of stuff um it's not without that kind of stuff but what i found was striking was that it there's some really great camera work in it Mm -hmm. and what i found what what really made me kind of like it especially was that like the second i would say like the like third the last third has like a very modern thriller feel to it Mm -hmm. where it's doing things that feel a lot more like I wouldn't say advanced, but like storytelling on a level that you just like didn't typically see then that you would see now in a movie of this kind. Um, So I thought that was really impressive. Yeah. And I think there's, you can kind of see that this is like roots for later thrillers and things. You can kind of see stuff, inspirations uh, for later stuff. I really liked it too. I, I, um, and, and you know, not that there weren't incredible films made, pre-1970 i was just really impressed though with the story the risks they took um the long shots like the cinematography in the movie was really great uh the i know we're going to go through the actual plot points um but i you know the stock the stalking scene in the beginning of the movie it's just like great suspenseful 10 to 15 minutes with no dialogue and i'm just really impressed when movies take those risks especially when uh especially when older movies do it where you know now you uh you have a tv show that's going to do something like that or you hear about it you know episode seven of you know this season they're going to do this thing like it's going to be this this 20 minute long shot or it's it's going to be this like that that's been done a lot um and so you know i always really enjoy it when you know when when uh the when it's being created yeah. Um, I thought I just I really like movies from this era because I think they really allow scenes to breathe in a way that you don't get in a lot of movies today. I really like when you can hold on a character for 30 seconds and you don't need to cut around the scenes a ton. It lends itself really nicely because you only have two main characters together probably 95% of the movie. Um, so I thought that was really effective filmmaking. Um, obviously, the, I thought the actress did a great job. And it was really creepy. And um, and unfortunately, the way it lay, like as it was unfolding and as they're just kind of playing this cat and mouse game, I just was put in a, a headspace of like men are the worst 
And the, it just reminded me of the, all those stories that, you know, female friends of yours might tell you of like some crazy ass guy they dated in high school or how women experience stuff in social media now where it, it is just this entitlement. And I, I just thought those themes like 60 years later are like they resonate now more yeah. so than ever. So I, I just thought this movie, I, I don't know how many young people you could get to sit down and watch this movie. Um, but it, it's really effective. Yeah. For me. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't even think about the element you're talking about there, Fabs, but yeah, it does make it as I was watching it, but it does make it quite relevant to today. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, th- I see a lot of, like roots for later thrillers and tropes. I, yeah, the sh- uh, cinematography is really solid. I think the performances are good. I will say, I mean, I've seen this at least once before, but it's been years. I still enjoyed the movie, but it this time around, it was a bit slow for my taste. Um, and yeah, yeah I mean, I, if I'm just being like totally honest, like I, I, I still like it, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it kind of it's it's like around two hours. And the story itself is pretty simple. There's not a whole lot that ultimately happens. Yeah. It's not. It's not like some like fucking artsy thing where like nothing happens. Like there is there is plot progression, um, but you know you could probably tell the same kind of thing in a somewhat tighter running time. I don't want to say like oh old movie be more like new movie. You know right. Mean, mm-hmm. But but still right. uh, it, it, you know it is, no transformers. Yeah. It is yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a bit slow throughout. Um, yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I I think we've talked about this before, and I probably have said it on the podcast before. And this is why you get. I always appreciate that you open my eyes to older stuff because, like, I never really willingly seek it out because I've always had that. And it just it is what it is. Like I've always had that sort of mentality about older films is that they're slower than I care them for yeah. them to be. And so it's hard for me to like sit myself down and be like, I'm going to watch this two hours movie from 1965, no matter how, you know, thrilling it claims to be. Yeah. Um, but I've got, and so I know the original dungeon hole. So, you know, you've got to do what I say. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, really, I have no autonomy here whatsoever. But um, the I, I do think that like it certainly I think once you get past the initial sort of premise and setup. There's that middle, the middle part of the movie kind of drags because it's already established who he is and who she is and what her aim is. And like, you probably, I mean, you know, I don't really know exactly what that would be if it was like, do you do something with like, because like there, there was an original cut of this that was like three hours that had like other minor characters and stuff. So do you do something where there's like, you know, do is there like a scene in the middle where like maybe she makes it out and she gets to the town and he finds her or something like something with a little more like action to it, I mm-hmm. think probably enhances it a little bit. Um, Cause he sure puts up with her shit quite a bit. <laughs> so he does. Uh, very he patient. Quite a, yes. Very patient. Yeah. You know, I, we I certainly place all the blame on her. Do not uh, endorse the comments uh, <laughs> stated by these men from uh, revenge yeah. of nineties podcast. Let me rephrase Let me rephrase what I just said. Uh, so, Please do. Uh, but I think like realistically in the movie, you could have done something where she gets like physically gets away and he finds her and he probably still is completely fine with it. Like he was with everything else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's neither really 
it's kind of whatever at that point. But, um, I mean, it ends on a really strong note, mm-hmm. and I, I appreciate it for that. Where like, it certainly like, you know, takes that risk at the end where it's like, no, this is a pretty grim movie, and it's gonna have a dark ending, yeah. whether you were looking for it or not, or thought it would be coming. Um, it was worth it to kind of make it through the rest of it. Cause like after a while you kind of get tired of his like stick, I think as a character, Freddie's whole like deal. Um, but it, but it, it brings it home pretty well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, let's uh, dig into the plot. So whoever wants to kind of walk us through the, the basic idea of what the story is. Yeah, I can. Um, so, you know, Freddie, uh, he's out doing his favorite thing, catching some butterflies like all normal guys do on a nice British afternoon. And he finds this, you know, countryside estate that has a very nice and discreet side house that he just knows is perfect for harboring a, a woman. Um, so he buys it. And then he he starts stalking this this art student, and you get this really really nice sequence. I just thought it was like really well done. I thought it was suspenseful, even though you I mean you know what's going to happen. Um, I just thought it was like really cool. You you see her day to day, and what I liked about it is a lot of the things she does during that sequence. He then uses in later scenes um, when she's you know doing her best to try to trick him. He holds certain activities and acquaintances she meets against her and he can't let go of certain things. Um, And so it all kind of, it it, it all comes back and it's all important. And then he, he does what he does. He does something that's his second favorite activity, which is getting a little bottle of chloroform out and uh, chloroforming her, kidnapping her. And um, he then (laughs) explains to her, you know, I've been, watching you i'm in i'm I'm basically gonna hold on to you until you you love me and um it kind of progresses from there and you actually you you, the way you described it there uh there is a lot of modern context in that right where you know he uses all like her like relationships against her where she's like where he always asks like who's that chap that you talk to in the bar right like using her like her profile photos. It's like, what's this about? Why were you dressed like this at this party? Right. Just like a super, uh, just, just like, obviously it's not a one-to-one, but like a a super jealous controlling boyfriend who, who thinks that a girlfriend is always got an ulterior motive or she's always looking to cheat on him or she's always looking to like do him wrong or whatever the case might be. He, he embodies that as like, you know, it's like, yeah, in this case, he's literally like imprisoned her, but like that's what it could feel like for a woman in a bad relationship with a controlling boyfriend. It is like a prison because this person because this can also be, they, those people can also be dangerous sometimes where you feel afraid to leave that person because they're so controlling and and you know jealous and stuff like that. So um yeah, she there's there's a to like, appease him too. She's right, like, okay, exactly. I'll, and like like I'll, ultimately you. like I'll kiss you, I'll sleep with you. Yeah. And like ultimately, you know, yeah, like these are the things I think you you want and like ultimately like abandons herself to try and, you know, find a way out of this. And and in this case, you know, it's like 
I think towards the end of the movie, like as things progress, you know, she's actively trying to find ways to, like you said, trick him and get out of this situation. Um, by the end, like she's, she's willing to have sex with him. And I, I think at that point in the movie, you don't know. I think at that point, you're, you're not entirely sure if like, she's resigned to her fate and like, she's just like, well, I'm just going to do this. Like if I'm stuck here, like I got to make, like, I've, I've got to like please him so he doesn't kill me at that point. Right. I don't even know if it was to like get away, yeah. you know? Um, and when he rejects her. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's like that. That's what I do like about this quite a bit is like, there, there is like sometimes these like movies from like 60, 70 years ago, sometimes it, it's, it's so interesting to see them like in a modern context. Cause you can like, it's like they were they were made in a different era. They just got pl- they just got plunked down into the '60s, where it's like yeah. a movie so clearly forward thinking that sometimes it's really fun to see that take shape and, and see like oh like this likely pushed ahead, you know some some other uh, directors and, and writers and stuff. And like you were saying, it's like certainly people mm-hmm. saw this and like had inspiration for other things. So it's like cool to see it from that perspective, but that's what makes it timeless counterpoint narratively counterpoint or women have just been struggling with this forever. There's (laughs) that too. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm fucking with you, but yeah, I mean, I I think that's, I mean, that, that in, in this, it's something I've thought about, you know, not with this film, but like with other stuff where, uh, I uh, I don't know, like, I can't remember what has popped up recently. So we're not not specifically to like sex or gender or anything like that. But um, just seeing like sometimes I'll see something from the 80s or 90s. Oh, it was The Critic. Like, I, was, I think I was watching The Critic and I was I've been rewatching Daria. And they'll like have jokes about like income inequality and things like that. of just kind of like the state of the world. And I'm just like, yeah, all those play exactly like they need to play today because Mm -hmm. this shit isn't new (laughs) like it's we haven't fixed it it was the same you know maybe maybe it's worse now maybe it was worse then you know that's always kind of like an up in the air thing but like yeah i mean some of these things like obviously there's gonna you watch older media there's gonna be references to stuff if people start talking about iran contra or lewinsky it's gonna (laughs) like date itself as something stupid but if you're talking about big broad concepts it's like yeah i mean those unfortunately usually don't change drastically no right yeah exactly yeah that that's uh that is another horrifying way to look at it yes so yeah so in this uh they they never sleep together um so that never happens which you don't really know uh watching it where it's headed because while this is an older movie it is 65 and, you know, like the uh, the Hayes Code was basically on its way out. Movies were starting to push back and ha- they would at least imply things. Whereas like an older movie, it just like there, it would absolutely never happen. But it was possible that it would at least happen within the story, regardless if we would actually see it um, for a movie of this era. And then uh, and then it's also British movie. So they wouldn't necessarily even be trying to follow, you know, American standards for that kind of stuff either. Um, but yeah, so it doesn't happen. He, uh, he wants to be with her. He wants her to be in love with him. He has kept her, you know, he's keeps her down in this like cellar area. Um, it's, you know, basically to convince her of how, you know, great he is. 
Um, but he has this sort of like purity aspect of like, he's, you know, he's going to treat her with respect. That is how he views it. So uh, he's, he's not going to do anything untoward. Mm -hmm. Another, another like warped mentality that like abusive. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. He views himself as the good guy. Right. Yeah. These jerks that she hangs out with during the day who are at pubs. They they wouldn't respect her like he would. And then there is that one scene right. where he gets like super weird and like is like grabbing at her, and so you're it's like both the audience and her aren't sure. Like, is he going to strangle her? Is he going to assault her? Like sexually assault her? And then she basically says, like, if you ever do, I'll never speak to you again. Well, like that's a pretty intense scene for that part. And then like like you said after that, she does say like in a span of like a 10 minute sequence that happens, she says, you can have your way with me if you want. So it's like fully implied that they're, that it's like on everybody's mind. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. And then she says, you know, if you do it, uh, I'll never talk to you ever again. And I'll never respect you. And he says it won't happen again. And then like, she gets, I mean, uh, there's the scene in the bath where the neighbor comes over. Yeah. That one plays pretty well. And it plays pretty darn well. And like, it was sort of, I don't, I'm not like super well versed in sixties film, but I thought it was like kind of shocking that they show like as much like nudity as they do. So there's like, but, and, and not in the sense that like, Oh, boobs, but like, it's very like charged because yeah, then yeah. there's the moment where um, he, like her towel falls and like, he's, he's like looking at her and then he like <laughs> weirdly like, moves the towel well, you don't up. you don't see anything but yeah you see a lot of skin so you don't see anything like uh yeah bathing suit wise but, but yeah. yeah there's a lot of skin. it's just like it it i think it just like kind of i think it adds like you were saying in a movie that might have been like five to ten years older wouldn't have dreamt of doing that but like just showing that you you sort of like are able to like uh, compartmentalize the stakes a little bit better yeah. and and understand that there's like this, there is like this, you know, this threat a little bit more rather than it just being like all prim and proper and British. Right. It, you know? Yeah. It feels a lot rawer knowing, you know, where this could actually go as opposed to a, what you, the version you might get in the fifties that, you know, might still have some, um, thriller-esque horror themes but you know at the end of the day you're like i mean she might die but you i don't think you have the emotional connection to to the character i don't think you um i I don't think it resonates as much um if this movie is made like a decade earlier yeah also did anyone else feel um i got so many like silence of the lambs vibes from this movie. All right. So there it is. So well, 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 <laughs> at last we come to it. Um, so uh, that's kind of the biggest reason I wanted to look at this. I hadn't watched it in years, um, but we have done a number of episodes on the show and this one will be promoted as such. Uh, we've done a number of episodes on the show that I have dubbed pre-makes. Um, and those are movies that uh, essentially inspire, like greatly inspire uh, later films um, where it's just like unquestionable and, and in some cases are actually documented. So Steve was on one we looked at for Secret of the Incas, 
which is documented as largely inspiring Raiders of the Lost Ark and really the entire Indiana Jones series. Because if you watch that film, there's stuff in there that you could argue that they probably pulled from for later movies. Um, that either mm-hmm. either Spielberg or Lucas were like, oh, what about this part? Maybe we can kind of weave that in or it's in the back of their mind or something. But look up Seeker of the Incas. It's not a particularly great movie. It's Charlton Heston. He's fun, but he's an adventurer character. He dresses nearly identical to Indiana Jones. And there's a lot of things that tie into it, including there's a whole map room sequence like in Raiders. So we looked at that one. And we looked at Planet of the Vampires, which has been cited uh, and essentially admitted by the writer of Alien as being the large inspiration for Alien. Uh, we actually, I, I was, th- we, I did not comment on this, and I should have in that episode. I had forgotten about it. it. Popped up recently on Facebook or something. There's another movie. Maybe we'll watch it someday. It's another movie called It: The Terror from Beyond. Um, that. Dan O'Bannon of Alien also cites as an inspiration hmm. from Alien. And there is a lot of similar, it's it's not as good as Planet of the Vampires. It's not as interesting, but it does have an alien coming on board a spaceship, picking people off one by one, and eventually it gets blown out an airlock. So that all sounds pretty similar. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, wow. uh, but anyway, so, uh, but we watched Planet of the Vampires, very interesting movie, a lot of similarities to Alien. Um, and then Steve, was, Steve's been on like, I think all of them. And Steve was also on the mm-hmm. episode when we looked at uh, the uh, Outer Limits episodes by Harlan Ellison and how they were very much the inspiration for the original Terminator to the point that James Cameron admitted to it uh, in an interview that he plagiarized and lost a court <laughs> case uh, due to that, and we talked about some of James Cameron's other uh, heavily borrowing of uh, of properties. Um, so you can check out those episodes uh, that we looked at for pre-makes. I just think it's a fun thing to look at. Because, yeah, obviously there's movies that and books and other things that inspire other works. But sometimes there's things where it's like, man, the connections are so clear. Now, this one I would argue, I would say is like the weakest of the ones we've done. It's not an explicit thing. It's not like, oh, this movie is very, you know, clearly it's like they, they, you know, they took the whole thing. It's not that. But that said, there are a good number of things in this. I I don't know how I came across this uh, when I watched it in college, if it was because I saw, oh, Terrence Stamp was in a horror thriller. That might have been all it was. Or maybe I heard it referenced somewhere that it's supposed to be a good, you know, old horror movie or whatever. But I know Mm -hmm. when I watched it way back when I was like, oh, holy shit, there's like a lot of stuff in here. And I would be amazed if the people who made Silence of the Lambs had never seen this film, Uh, at least the director and or cinematographer. But I wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. if Thomas Harris, uh, the writer of the original books, uh, wasn't pulling from this. So I have some notes on this, but yeah, I'll put it up to you boys first of what you noticed of, uh, since this is going to be one of our pre-make episodes and, and one real quick before you jump in, uh, I will add, I did have both of you on here because I know you both love silence of the lambs and I was on your, yeah, we were, you were, so I wanted to surprise you with this. I, I, I was very delighted when, um, I mean, I'm not, I don't like bugs, but uh, obviously, you know, the imagery of he collects 
um, collects butterflies and uh, you know, they have a very good conversation about she's like you care about these things so much you covet them which is like language you get from silence of the lambs well, does she say covet? Like, um i don't think she no i don't think she does okay. say covet okay i mean that that but, would blow like, my he, mind if, if she did but but like he so he covets these things but she, she comments on like you care about them but like you you're killing them like you you just have this this museum of of dead things that you say you care about which obviously will come into play later with like what happens with her and then the final scene of the movie um so a lot of the imagery with that um obviously holding her captive um you know the the mental games the 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 cat and mouse between them uh reminded me of a lot of the things that happened in silence of the lambs um but yeah definitely just I I would be so surprised. It's just so so specific. Um, some of the images you see of uh, the butterflies are things that you later see, which are the butterflies that are put down the throats of the victims that keep yeah. turning up in Silence of the Lambs. So um, that was like, I'm like 15, 20 minutes in. And I'm like, oh, this, I think he intentionally picked this movie for this, but <laughs> I'll find out on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I I had a harder time finding like connections. I think other than like the explicit like butterfly moth sort of angle to it, um, I didn't see anything as explicit. Um, well, the you're only other wrong. Thing I, I, I've got a list. Well, I want to hear them. I want to hear it. Uh, the only the only other one I can that like sort of stands out a little bit is like the van. Yeah, because like. Again, you know, 30 years between these movies. I don't really know, um, like, uh, how that would really connect. But but in uh, Silence of the Lambs, I don't... When he abducts her with the van, he does it at night, right? Yeah. In, like, a parking lot? Yeah. So, but it's, like, out in the open. And I thought that that was interesting in this, too. That, like, she comes across the van and, like, you know it's a menacing van. Uh, but the, but she obviously doesn't yet. And then like in this case, it's in broad daylight, but around like you see people in the background as he's like chloroforming her in the in the van. I, th- that one stood out to me a little bit that just like sort of sequence that like really unsettling sequence with the van that that I felt a connection on that. But Lynn, I need to hear your. List. Yeah. Well, the van is one of them. I feel the van, the way that's depicted. I mean, you could say like, oh, well, a serial killer picks our, I mean, he, I guess the collector guy isn't technically a serial killer, but, um, you know, kidnapper, serial killer, picking up someone in a van, like that's okay. So what? But there's all kinds of ways in real life or in a movie to show someone being abducted. Um, and so just the visual language of how that's depicted and him watching her. And then later he's watching someone else all feels very similar to me to Buffalo Bill watching Catherine Martin. Um, we, we, we see him planning, you know, to, to get her and everything. Um, there's, as Fab said, he's keeping her in his basement effectively. It's in a side house, but it's a basement. So just like, uh, you know, he's uh, Buffalo Bill keeps Catherine Martin in the basement. Um, the back and forth between them, he's very much not like Buffalo Bill as char- as a character. His characterization is not. Um, but the, the keeping her there, the butterfly aspect that Buffalo Bill is like obsessed with butterflies and specifically moths. 
Um, and then there is a l- line where he says a monk sends him larvae uh, that he incubates himself. And that's one of the plot points of Silence of the Lambs is that uh, Buffalo Bill is getting, he's, he's not just hatching or catching butterflies. He's actually importing eggs and larvae so that he can raise them. And that's one of the parts when Clarice takes it to uh, the, the guys at the FBI, the insect guys is like, He's like, somebody loved him in that creepy scene of like, they realize like, oh, he's raising these things. Yeah. Uh, and so, so that's just, I mean, it's a tiny little moment mm. in this movie. No, that's good. It's a, it's, it's really an good. added thing. Um, and then this one, this might've been the one when I was watching it in college that made it click for me of like, holy shit. Like they had to, I mean, I'm still convinced they had to have watched this movie like I don't know if Thomas Harris suggested to Jonathan Demi, like, oh, go go check this out because it was one of my inspirations or whatever. But his basement has all this stonework in it. Um, it's like an yeah. old English country house thing, and it's like just like big stone, like like dark, uh, like like a dark tan kind of look. So not only does that stonework look similar to the stone we see of Buffalo Bill's well, which you could say, okay, it's a well, it's going to look like whatever, but still there is a, there is a visual connection there, I would say, but even more so it looks nearly identical to the interior to Hannibal Lecter's cell. And on top of that, uh, Hannibal Lecter has drawings he puts up in his cell that eventually get taken down as punishment. But he he's a very skilled artist and he draws, you know, like uh, people and he draws locations and stuff. And those those drawings are up against that stonework in at least one or two scenes in the early parts of the film. In this movie, the girl is an artist and eventually she starts drawing things and painting things and those paintings are put up, those drawings are put up on that stonework in the background of scenes. And that Mm -hmm. to me is like such specific visual language. And when you tie it in with all these other elements that are like very similar narratively, it's like, come on guys, there's no way you were unaware of this movie. That's, that's my, and I did look it up. I was curious. I was like, is this just me being crazy? Um, But I have seen other people comment on uh, like other people, blog articles and things talking about the collector arguing that, it, it likely served as an inspiration for Silence of the Lambs, noting some of these visual similarities and things that I'm talking about. Oh, okay. oh well, one, one more. Um, this is this one's possibly more of a stretch, and it could just be me classifying all British people as a certain way. Um, as you should. Yeah. I mean, Terrence Stamp, I think, is English, and Anthony Hopkins is Welsh, I believe. But when, like I said, uh, Freddie is not buffalo bill in demeanor but when he comes down the stairs and he's like got like a tray with tea and food for and stuff and he's standing there in his blue suit and he's just like proper and rigid now maybe that's just oh that's just a proper british man but there's a little bit of a vibe of like hopkins very polite lector in meeting clarice now, Hopkins, mm-hmm. I know, did his own thing, and I highly doubt they would, even if they showed him a movie, I doubt he'd be like, I'm going to copy that performance. But a director can still kind of want a certain vibe or guide in a certain direction. 
So I don't know. I wonder if possibly Freddie's kind of cold and detached demeanor, but politeness could have played somewhat into like how Lecter was directed. Yeah, yeah. Whether it was like, whether it was like explicit or intentional or not, it certainly plays well. And I could see it maybe being used as like an inspiration or just like, it just really plays well in anything like, you know, you you can really play off that proper British trope and turn him into real psychopaths real quick. You sure um, can. You really, really can. Um, but he does have, he can go, especially towards the end, uh, he can go zero to a hundred pretty, pretty quick and pretty frighteningly the way Lecter, where there's always that underlying like fear of who he is. And I think you get a good sense of that with Freddie especially once they kind of dispense with like it just being pleasantries with him. Um, I think like when they do like some of those zooms on his face or like when they like, you know, um, like play with the shadows and like, it's just like his menacing eyes and stuff like that. You get, you get a sense like that where I could see that like through line from that type of character to like a Hannibal Lecter. I, I could buy that, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought they did, by him going, being able to go from zero to 100, um, it really added to the tension, not just of like, what's he going to do next, but in her reactions to him. Because the last third of the film, she's trying, she's throwing everything out at him to try to just get home safely. Like she, She'll marry him. She'll, she'll do whatever he wants. She just, it's just like, please, please like you said, they're like, after 30 days right and it is just uh her being temporarily put at ease by him being calm cool collected and then just the moment she just tries any kind of game on him even if it wasn't necessarily a game he'll he he just goes on her and and just gets furious with her because he didn't have full complete control of her actions and and of her in that moment. So he thought I was being played. And so it just, it just really ratchets it up for that last third of the movie. And it, it makes it genuinely scary. So um, the, I did see a little bit of the lector where he could go just super pleasant. I actually watched, uh, rewatched red dragon like four or five days ago, incidentally, and just how he goes from, you know, very polite, calm and collected to just blank stare Oh no, I said the wrong thing. What did I do? You start playing it back in your head and then just the worst fears become imagined. Yeah. And of course there is that scene where Freddie bites his neighbor's nose off. <laughs> so, yes, I guess that's fairly. It's a uh, Hannibal fairly, Lecter uh, and the uh, penguin. Those are the, the, the two best <laughs> nose biting scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Nose biting yeah. Mount Rushmore. It could of, be worse. Um, yeah. My nose could be gushing blood. Um, so uh, right yeah. after that very sexual eating of that that fish, he does. <laughs> oh yes, he yeah. <laughs> the sound editing oh that that was like the sound editing of that person. Have you guys career. done Batman Returns on the show? We have, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, new new Batman, new Michael Keaton Batman on the way, sort of the, buried in another 
film nobody cares about, but yeah, I don't want to <laughs> with see like that four other Batmans ten... in it. Yeah. yeah, I want to see the ten minutes of Michael Keaton. <laughs> I don't know. They're playing it up. I mean, I know this is way off here, but <laughs> like fine. they're playing it up like he's like some other main character. Man, I don't know. I don't know what they going know on what there. they're doing. It's what they yeah. yeah. I you know I yeah. mean he'll probably have like a decent supporting role, um, but yeah I don't know I mean I I've I mean yeah we're going off kilter but that's fine but no I would love I know Steve you and I have talked about it like I would love if DC knew what the fuck they're doing or rather Warner Brothers knew what the fuck they're doing they just keep finding new ways to get worse, um, <laughs> you know like canceling movies and you know like burying them in a yeah. fucking vault with Walt Disney's head and. Um, yes all kinds of stuff but um taking things off their streaming platform and everything but um sorry fabs i know you work in the industry uh <laughs> you're gonna i'm gonna, gonna take you down on this one you'll never work at warner brothers uh <laughs> oh i left warner brothers they yeah they don't know what they're doing like at all <laughs> all right we well, heard it here first hey. folks um but no so like i would love i mean i know people bitch about like you know, nostalgia stuff and legacy sequels. I think most of them have been pretty fun. I've enjoyed a lot of them. Uh, it's a whole other argument, but I would love to see an in-universe, like, give me an old Michael Keaton Batman, but get put it in the Burton one. I don't want all this, like, other universe, like, other universes that I yeah. don't give a fuck about. Like, you, all your yeah. other movies that you've I, butchered, like, no, just... Tim Burton produces because I can't trust him to direct anymore. He produces. You get somebody else to <laughs> to come in there and direct. You get Michael Keaton, and you, yeah. you set it in the, that world. Yeah, it, I haven't like it's like uh it's like in the Matrix when um, Cipher kills everybody through the phone line, and one one of the members is like not like this not like this and that's what i was thinking that's what i was thinking watching a trailer of michael keaton fighting like general zod from superman man of steel i was like i don't want to see that hey remember the remember the one character you liked that you know the michael keaton batman well he's back with all these other characters you never liked <laughs> and we made and we did four flashes for you. You know how everybody hates Ezra Miller? Well, now you get four times the Ezra Miller in this one. He's also going to lead all of our lot tours for the next year. Enjoy. Yeah, right. <laughs> the amount of money they must have handed Michael Keaton, man. I'm well, no, he I mean, I've seen a lot of people have like been knocking him on Twitter, acting like he doesn't give a fuck, like they're like pointing to clips and being like, oh, he clearly doesn't give a shit. This is all for the paycheck. But like he really does like being Batman. Like he's like he even I'm sure he does. No, I mean, he's yeah. like commented on it in interviews years later. Like he's still like is proud of his work and he was bummed yeah. when he didn't get to do a third one. And, you know, I'm sure he got some decent money, but he's like a legit actor. And he's usually yeah. picking like real serious projects. So I, I do think he's coming back because it's like, oh, I get to be Batman again. That's cool. Right. And yeah, yeah. why wouldn't you? As right. props to Michael Keaton, I did read like a year ago when uh, they were doing like prep for this movie um, that they had like moldings and stuff of the original costume that they're working off of when they were like fitting him for like his new bat suit and he still fit into it. So he's like, wow. 
Yeah, he's like the same, you know, like, I mean, if you look at him, he he looks fit and trim and it kind of mm-hmm. always has. So props to Michael Keaton. Yeah. I mean, props to me. Like, I still fit into my wedding tux. Granted, I was incredibly overweight then and still am. Uh, but, you know, I played the game well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's, that's something all for that. everyone to aspire to out there. So Gen Z, as you approach your wedding sometime, just just be morbidly obese going into it. And then it's, it's yeah, you beef up. To, yeah, you don't have to bulk up, bulk season. Yeah, bulk. Yep. It's all about the bulking season. <laughs> And then if you do lose the weight, then you look hilarious later in the oversized suit you have. Right. Like as if you may, and then like you can make people question whether or not like, is there, are you like sitting on like a Muppet's shoulders? Exactly. Yes. Like in that suit. (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. So back to the collector, we were talking about like Freddie's reactions to things. I just going to throw out a couple quick things. One was, when he flips out about the uh, the art, like when he doesn't understand art or literature, like he just clearly <laughs> just isn't, he's just not intelligent enough or at least educated, ed- educated enough. And he's just like, this is all bad. Picasso's bad. People's faces don't look like that. Um, <laughs> I love that scene. She's like, wait, what do you mean? He's like, that's not really what a face looks like, though. And she's like, but that's not like. That's oh my god! Okay, and then he gets even more pissed at her. That that <laughs> like because his big thing is like his big thing is like you're not having a real conversation with me. That's what he keeps like. None of this is real, you know. Like he keeps um, telling her like you know you're you're just forcing it. You're you're just telling me what I want to hear. Uh, and then when she does push back on the art thing and makes him feel dumb, he gets even more pissed and that's like again same same thing as any other abusive guy you know it's like um don't make me feel like a fucking idiot like that you know that kind of thing yeah Um, real dennis reynolds golden god vibes for him (laughs) right you know i don't i'm not gonna care about this shit art you know or you know it's like or like this like but that's like isn't that like anti-intellectualism going on now where it's like yes. all you people up in your ivory towers yeah. reading your books and talking about all your paintings and like uh you know it's like the the liberal elite off well, off in the distance that's the thing like i mean it happens on twitter and facebook and other places where a lot of these i mean it's unfortunate but it's a lot of these like people who like movie fans but people who like comic book movies who like sci-fi fantasy stuff stuff we all like and horror and it fucking sickens me because it's like god you make us all look like fucking idiots and dumbasses but but they'll like rail against movie critics because it'll be like oh Mm -hmm. you know this movie's amazing you you're you're just all a bunch of fucking elitist assholes what do critics know and it's like well you know i like comic book movies and other things too and sometimes critics i think can be too hard on certain things i'm like no this is actually pretty fun but a lot of times it's like, no, this movie is dog shit. It's okay if you're like having fun <laughs> okay. with it, but yeah, right. you know, they they might know what they're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, yeah. It's like, believe it or not, like some of these people went to school specifically to be a film critic or, or it's not, or if they didn't, 
like the film, it's not a personal attack against you. Yeah. There's like this mentality of like, you know, when when a critic or somebody doesn't like, you know, the the Ant Man quantum mania. Yeah. It, it it's like a personal attack, like, oh, you're an idiot for liking it. And it's like, that's not the case. It's just like, you can like whatever the hell you want. Um, you, what people don't realize is like, it's like people who like the things we like, you know, sci-fi and comic book stuff and, and horror even, it's like, we won. That stuff all does gangbusters oh, and these yeah. studios can't get this stuff out fast enough. So they like, spent you won so much the... of their budgets on it. Yeah. You won the war. Yeah. You won the war. Yeah. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah. what's the problem? But, but that's a that's that's an interesting point though, uh, what you said about when people don't like or come come a, come at something that you like, you take it personally, and you can put that into this situation. You can put that into abusive relationships. You know when it's like you know you're at a restaurant, like no you you don't like you should order this thing like very controlling of like, like I'm going to set the standard for like in this relationship, what food we're going to have, what movies and shows we're going to like, what music we're going to listen to. Obviously that's wholly unhealthy, but you get a little bit of that in this movie when he doesn't understand something that she understands, then she's wrong yeah. because photography is the real true art form because it tells you exactly what you're seeing there's no such thing as expressionism or any of that nonsense it is like it, because he doesn't get it even though she's literally in school studying this and is a very good artist he knows more about this than she does and like clearly he i mean it's like duh but like he he's followed her for like what months probably given like what he knows about her and her habits um and yet knows knows really nothing about her or doesn't care to you know it's like he he has no real interest obviously he imprisoned her but like he has no real interest he has an interest of her in being in love with him but yeah, no they, interest and they what they knew that, he, and yes they knew of each other at school like he was like a, a creepy oh guy yeah they rode the like, bus yeah it was like yeah that's what it was yeah so I mean, he yeah, he doesn't even together. he doesn't know her personally. So it's just someone that he thought was attractive from afar is kind of how it all begins. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say there are a couple parts when he's not flipping out that I thought worked really well with like a restrained creepiness. Um, so like the proposal scene uh, had him being pretty chilling, just uh, mostly restrained through that, and then the other one that I really like. And I felt played, we were talking about things playing kind of modernly at times. Um, she, uh, well, when she thinks she's getting out, he has a couple lines where I thought like played good and creepy. She thinks she's getting out. And then he like basically shows that she's not going to, cause like she hasn't loved him yet or whatever. And uh, you know, she hasn't passed whatever test he has in his mind. Um, and he says something about like, you know, that uh, something about changing his mind or, you know, like he just has some line, ba yeah. basically just expresses like I'm in control here. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other line I did write down um, when she's saying like that 
they're going to come, they're going to find me, everybody's looking for me that, you know, like my parents and anyone at the school that like, they know I'm, they know I'm not going to just disappear. And so she's trying to kind of like convince him of like, this isn't going to work and you're going to end up getting fucked over because they're going to find me. And he has a really good chilling line where he says, uh, they're looking for you. All right. But nobody's looking for me, which is true. And a horrific mm-hmm. thing if you were in that position of like, yeah, they're right. looking everywhere for her, but they're in the middle, they're in this country house in the middle of nowhere, and she's in the basement, locked up, and you can't, she can scream and nobody can hear because there's like a reinforced door thing. And so, uh, so yeah, there's no reason to think she's down there. Like, they would have to look, search every house in England before they would find her. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty, <clears throat> it, and it's pretty chilling when he proposes to her and that she has that look on her face where she realizes that and that's where the movie really gets that like gets dark is where she realizes in her you see it in her face that she knows she's not getting out and i think that that plays really well it it plays better when she's at the table doing like more of an understated sort of reaction as opposed to when she like sort of starts running all over the house and stuff. And it's kind of, you know, there's like sort of a weird exchange. Did you just do Muppet arms? Again. <laughs> we did, yeah. Did I do what? Muppet arms running all over the house and stuff. And kind of. Like, yeah. I mean, she nailed your arms like Kermit. Yeah. Yeah. It's little, I, that always gets me about older movies, you know, like Kermit I think, when, like, uh, when, when the Muppet show isn't going well and he's running around. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. It's five minutes to showtime and, uh, Gonzo isn't around. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's, fucking it's, that, that chicken. Always... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, That's uh, canon, the... everyone. That's canon. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, we all... Oh, trust me. We all know. And I've read your story. I've read your uh, your stories on it, so... It's called Slash Fiction, Steve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't... I keep telling you that doesn't automatically make it canon, but you don't seem to listen. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I always laugh at like older movies that like you were saying, Fabs, it's like that they do a lot of like scenes that don't necessarily cut. Um, and I always laugh at like some of the scenes that involve and require action in them because it's always sort of silly sometimes. Um, it'll be jolting because it's, you'll have it just like, there's no movement in the scene for the longest time. And then this really jumpy movement where the camera is barely following it. Not in this movie, but just like in older movies. And it just seems so like goofy and fake. Even though yeah, like like, when I'm she... sure in the moment it was really well acted and intense. <clears throat> yeah, like and then like even at the end of this when she hits him with the shovel. So like, you know, she doesn't think she's gonna get away. Um I think she, I think this is like the next, this is like later on, but like in like sort of one of their last exchange, one of their last exchanges after a bath, I, another one of her baths, she, um, it's like raining outside or something. And, um, she tricks him by like dropping some stuff out of her bag. Yeah. And it hits him with the shovel. And then she, he's like bleeding everywhere and she gets like, she gets like, overwhelmed and like frightened by the fact that he's like bleeding and he, and she 
doesn't hit him again doesn't doesn't finish the job basically and that's, only that's something that irks me and this, this is just me as a movie viewer so i don't know in reality how we would all react but having watched so many movies i feel i would carry this over into reality but i always feel having watched so many slashers jason freddy movies all that kind of stuff you smash until it's pulp you just yes. keep wailing yes. like you yes. don't hit them right. once with the hammer or the shovel or whatever and be like, I got him. No, you go till you see brain and then you keep that. that yeah, that was the only that. Yeah, that was like what bothered me a little bit about that was like she saw him bleeding and was like, oh, and then like then they, you know, I, I, I couldn't anymore. And it's like, I it's like, come on, man. Like, but honey, that, you're you at know. the finish line here. No one would yes. Yes. do it. and. Well, I thought like I actually thought I, I you know it's it's a nice grim dark ending, but I actually thought it would have been even more certainly certainly more satisfying if she lived, but like it would have been more in like um for the time period probably more intense to have her just like like you said brain him out and like yeah just murder the dude and then walk off go all down I the street on your grave yeah really like go like. Evil Dead uh, style and get like showered in blood, uh, and uh, I, I thought that would be a pretty bold choice. Um, <laughs> I did, I did like that, that. There was some physical escalation by her. That was, that was great. I thought the moment where it was kind of like, oh shit, like she might actually die in this movie, was when she says to him. Um, I'm not leaving here alive, am I? And in all the other scenes, he like reassures her, like, "Oh, don't worry, no, like, just let me think about it. I just need time." And he just doesn't say anything to her. He's like, "Let's just let's go." And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, "Oh, <laughs> if that was the person's reaction." Then it's just like, it doesn't matter what I do because I, you know, if if you know, in every movie you you in all these types of movies you always put yourself like Lenton said, you put yourself in this situation of like, okay, what would I do in this scene? And we would all bash the head until it's pulp. Um, but in the movies, uh, there's the point of no return. And, you know, you usually never even want to, like, leave the initial spot they're trying to take you from. You do everything you can. But then once you realize, okay, this isn't a ransom thing. And for me, like, I would already know that because it's, I don't, <laughs> none of us come from families where it would be a ransom situation. So it's, I already think, like, I'm probably going to die here. So I don't have to do anything I need to. But once you, once you know, Oh, this is just going to like this is just a I'm gonna eventually be tortured. That's where you fight for your life. And so I thought that was really cool that like the moment first moment she got a chance is like she she activated. She just she just didn't finish the job on him. Yeah. Uh to your point, Steve, of like the ending, uh so I did read that the ending of the book is slightly different. Um, so we'll spoilers here. So the way the movie plays out is after she hits him on the head, he locks her down back in the cellar. And then he like goes away and he's gone for several days. And he's essentially like healing. He might go see a doctor. Um, I'm not sure if it's stated. I think I read it might be like that. He went and saw a doctor or something, but I don't know if he says it. Um, But so she's down there by herself. And then uh, she was out in the rain. She was wet. They both were. And so I think the idea is like she got pneumonia or something. Um, and she also hasn't been eating. Um, so he just kind of and left her down there. She breaks the heater. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So she's down there, she, and yeah. then so she's like dying, and then he he basically thinks it's a trick because she did try to trick him before and be like my appendix, and it was all a trick. Um, and so he's what thinking that sixties trick that is. Um, but then, <laughs> but then he realizes she's serious, and then he's not able to do anything, and you know she dies. Um, and I guess uh, in the book he, I think just out of retaliation, just kind of leaves her down there for a while. So they softened it a little bit to make it like, oh, he's actually been away. Um, But I guess when they were making it, they had someone else do a draft of the script to give a happy ending where she gets away. And the director, they wrote it and the director's like, yeah, absolutely fucking not. We're not doing that. And so uh, he held firm (laughs) um, that she would die. Uh, and then since we haven't addressed it yet, the ending is she dies. And then uh, Freddie's like, well, she was kind of stuck up and all artsy fartsy anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I, just, right. I really I just need like a nice girl who's just going to be normal. And so he goes out looking for somebody again. And then it just kind of sets up uh, the further adventures of Freddie. Right, he's he's no longer collecting butterflies. Terrence Stamp's still out there. Let's get a collector legacy sequel. Let's see that. Oh, that'd be incredible! I actually would like a remake of this movie. Why not? (laughs) Why not? Let's let's. I'm I'm all for it. Like it's it's him and that nurse that he was stalking at the end, but she's now like eighty. You know, still down there. Yes. No, it's like it's 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 uh it's actually a much more lighthearted rom-com where he actually he he did just need a girl that he connected better with and he gets married to the nurse and that movie in the legacy sequel is them going to their son's destination wedding somewhere tropical and it's or, more of a rom-com. Or if <laughs> so. you want to have a cheaper budget, it's him the the nurse they they had a family and his kid, his son, and uh, daughter-in-law are dropping off the grandkids to the cottage, and the grandkids are playing, and they find the body, and then he tells mm-hmm. them the story, and then they just—it's footage from the first movie, and you just have the first movie. It's a two and a half hour movie. You have fifteen minute bookends, and then kids, this is how I met your grandmother, and then it goes to the nurse, and, and it ends with him locking them in the cellar. And then uh, <laughs> right. kicking him from behind, leaving him. Yes, yes. That's how you sneak in the three-hour director's cut that this really exactly. initially yes. was. On that, yeah. that is. I mean, we don't have to go into it uh, length uh, at any length here, but yeah, like it. This movie did originally run three hours. They cut a whole subplot about Miranda's lover, so they had another actor who was like an older gentleman who was her lover. And I guess you see him like the back of his head in like the bar scene when Freddie's stalking her and they allude mm-hmm. to this guy. It all plays totally well without ever seeing this guy or having him really in the movie. But in the original cut, there was like, I think they said like 30 minutes of prologue with like this guy and her before Freddie's doing his thing, which like, you got that plus another think, yeah. half hour somewhere, probably like space throughout. Like I already said, this movie's fairly slow. I feel a three hour cut of this would be just fucking intolerable, <laughs> especially if it was like three <laughs> yeah, hours, no, like, I, 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 half an hour is just like, 
oh, here's me with my older gentleman caller. Everything's fine. It's like there's no thriller aspect. There's nothing scary. Nothing. Well, and just... and you would get like you would get that insufferable like trope from that era of like the hero guy who's like I'm gonna investigate and do my you know look for her and and do this like you know sort of like damsel in distress type of thing um and you'd have to deal with him just randomly talking to people out in london about you know random shit which would take away from the story so like i'm more than fine cutting that character out and just because again that's a real nice modern feel to the to the film and to some extent is to not have like a boyfriend who's like whether or not he saves her but like not have this like boyfriend character like goofing around during the movie so i'm that's great Um, (laughs) i'm glad one other uh background note on this uh like production note so according uh, this is like from wiki or something according to terrence stamp weiler wouldn't let samantha egger off the set during the day he also wouldn't allow her to eat with anyone else during the lunch break stamp argues weiler knew what he was doing as the director whispered to him one day on set Quote, I know this looks cruel, but we're going to get a great performance out of her. Um, and yeah, I read like that he was really pushing her and like was keeping her pretty isolated. And she was only allowed to talk to her like acting coach. She had like a character actress who was like coaching her, which that was in from what I read sounded kind of shitty. Anyway, it was like he they did some early shooting and he basically acted like her acting wasn't good enough. And then he like mm-hmm. brings in this, which might have been a psychological game to fuck with her. Possibly it didn't say, but then they bring in this like other character actress who is not in the role to basically be like, oh, you need to teach her how to be better at acting. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's some, it's some, some kind of Kubrick-esque stuff going on. Yeah, some real Hitchcock stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay, uh, we can wrap up here. Only a couple other notes I have is, one, when she wakes up initially after being kidnapped, uh, speaking of Kubrick, I don't think this was, like, necessarily intentional. Although Kubrick, to my understanding, did watch virtually every movie that came out. Like, he just watched everything. So it wouldn't be surprising if he had seen The Collector. Um, But he wasn't the composer, but he did have control over like fuck every fucking aspect of his productions. Mm-hmm. Um, when she wakes up, the score is almost identical to the theme from the shining. So if you boys have file oh. still, I mean, I didn't know it years ago when I watched it, but I was rewatching it and it's like, bum, 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 mm. bum, bum, bum. It's like, it does all the same notes and then it goes somewhere else. And it was like, that's the fucking intro to the shining right there. Now, Again, Kubrick didn't make the score, but who knows? Maybe he's like, oh, I want to give a feel of claustrophobia like the collector. And he shows, Mm -hmm. you know, the musician, you know, composer like several films. I don't know. Or it's just a total accident. Yeah. Just sounds similar. I caught it. So look for it, folks. When she wakes up uh, (laughs) downstairs in the, the dungeon. That as that you said that as like there were like two men in white coats like dragging you away. <laughs> Doctor Sanderson says I'm sane now, Steve, <laughs> and he says he's heard it too. <laughs> uh, the only other bit is uh, at one point when the annoying neighbor shows up, 
Um, and he starts talking about like the house and that there's like this like secret compartment. He refers to it as a priest hole. And I was like, I beg your pardon? <laughs> like with no explanation like, what? of what that means. <laughs> right. Like, like we're all supposed right. to know what a priest hole is. And I'm like, ah. I do wonder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do wonder about some of that stuff with the neighbor that it was like, it all got chopped up a little bit. Cause like, why would you go through all this explanation of all this stuff about the priest hole and knowing stuff about the crypt? I, I definitely was under the impression that like that would save her in the end. Yes. Would be I like, so too. Somehow like that, something somewhere that would come into play either. Like, like the fact that like the neighbor mentions that the group would be really mad that he put a light in the crypt area. Cause it's like a historical mm-hmm. marker. Um, I was like, okay, there's going to be something that saves her neck based on like the priest hole or, um, you know, whatever. Cause like, why go through all that? I could, then? I could see it being something that got cut. Although a couple things I'll throw out on that real quick is like, I think it works essentially as a thriller sequence. What it is is she clogs or she gets the toy or the, the tub running. And so it overflows and the water pours out of the bathroom she's all tied up and so she's trying to get the neighbor to notice which he does and then freddie has to be like oh no uh the the bathroom does that sometimes and he has to like go up and do shit and so that's my brother no it's it's my girlfriend and my um, girlfriend brother and so <laughs> as a thriller like moment, it works fine. I read that part wasn't in the novel. Like I think most of the rest of what we see is, and they added that I think to give like a suspenseful moment. So that could be why maybe it's seeming a little mangled or like planting seeds mm-hmm. that don't go anywhere is because they were like probably just inventing a sequence for this just to give the audience a boost. The other thing I think about it, and again, maybe this is me like wrongly classifying British people, but it seemed odd considering like the way I'm sure they're like boorish British people who are awful, but that's not how we think of them. And we think of them being, you know, like polite and shit like boorish Americans. Yeah. And again, not all Americans are that way, but it did seem a little weird that like this dude who's his neighbor is just like bursting into his house at like 11 p.m. or whatever time it is and just like here i'm just Mm -hmm. gonna talk to you for 10 minutes yeah out of the blue and it was like would british people do that like is that a thing that would happen (laughs) or would they like be like oh i have to go die now if i ever do that to someone yeah right yeah exactly yes (laughs) yeah i don't know yeah yeah i don't i don't know if that would be a uh like a, a horrifying experience for a british person yeah I mean, I'm really sure there are probably, you know, really uncouth, terrible British people who might do that. But it, it did strike me as odd. But maybe that's part of the point is like, you know, Freddie is a more traditional reserved Brit. He's, yes. And then he's like, three piece like, yeah, he's like right. oh, this guy, how do I deal with this? Um, all right. So uh, we can wrap up. Uh, would you recommend The Collector? Uh, yes, I absolutely would. Um, I, I think that like th- there's, it's, it's not without like it's little warts, I would say, um, overall, but like, it's so compelling a watch, especially in like the second half of the movie. I think that the performances are really fantastic and Oscar nominated, um, in addition to the movie itself, I believe and, and Weiler. Um, but I think, 
it's a really compelling movie and I, it, like for every reason we've talked about you know the modern context and all that kind of stuff but like it, it's just like a really I, I love I love coming on here because you always pluck out these movies from this, these eras that I honestly never even really heard of and so for me it's like just I, I like seeing um, films that are really excellent from this era because I just typically wouldn't have sought them out so i think like if you're if you're like you're the same way where you're like don't really know where to go um this podcast is good for that so i I would recommend it for that um and one last thing i would mention too is i don't know if you guys noticed this one last thing on the silence of the lambs connection i forgot to mention the cover art for like the poster whatever updated poster cover art they did yeah yeah did you see that that like it's it's, yes. it's, it's like, cover of the Blu-ray too. Okay, yeah, it's like his eyes and then a butterfly, um, with his like his eyes superimposed on it, and it just gives off very much Silence of the Lambs poster vibes yes, with like her absolutely. face and the moth and everything. So the color scheme, there's a little bit yeah. of a yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, on my movie shelf, I've had it. Uh, I have all the the good Lecter movies, not uh, well, what was the prequel called? Hannibal Rising. Um, so I have Red Dragon, mm. Silence. Oh, God. Red, yeah. Red Dragon, Silence, and Hannibal all together. But I have the Collector immediately preceding it because I always feel it kind of, you know, it's similar vein and I feel it inspired it. So, yeah, I have those uh, right next to each other. Very good. Um, I would recommend this movie for sure, uh, especially if you're a horror fan. Um, it's very suspenseful. It's very well done. It is a little slow, maybe 10 to 15 minute trimming, um, but it does a lot of really cool and innovative things, especially for when it was created. Um, yeah, and I always like movies that are very minimalistic with cast and with location because uh, you get a really good sense of the location. And um, it's, it's another one of those good movies to watch with a group of people because like we were talking about, you know, a few minutes ago, it's always fun to debate what you would do in these scenarios. So uh, definitely give it a watch. Yeah, for me, uh, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, it's, as I said, it was a bit slow for me on the rewatch, um, but I there's a lot of things that I still like about it. I mean, I like Terrence Stamp as an actor. He's good here. Um, the actress is solid as well. Uh, it's very well shot. There's some good tense scenes. And then I like seeing the, the roots for Silence of the Lambs, but also just a lot of later thrillers that this is, uh, I feel as is an inspiration for many other thrillers in, in like tone and uh, certain sequences and just kind of interplay between characters. So um, yeah, I I enjoy it. I think it's worth uh, checking out. So uh, on that note where you can find this, can I find this? Uh, So this movie is out there a number of places currently, Apple TV, Amazon, Google play, YouTube, voodoo, Microsoft, and others. And then it is on DVD and is on Blu-ray. So uh, you have various ways that you can track down the collector. Um, So uh, yeah, do so if you're so inclined. All right. So that wraps us up for this one, uh, this pre-make. 
Uh, I have uh, a couple other in mind that we're going to have to get to eventually. Um, but we, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun, uh, fun way to shake things up. And, uh, if, if anyone has any good ideas for pre-makes, uh, you can go ahead and, uh, you can message us on Twitter, Facebook, something like that. Go ahead and like and follow us on either of those. I mean, you know, Twitter is probably going to implode any day now, probably by the point this episode gets posted. Uh, Elon Musk will, you know, do something that just sets all of it on fire. Push the wrong button. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but assuming Twitter survives um, and isn't a total hellscape. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at at Cinema Uncanny. Um, or you can just look up Uncanny Cinema. You should find us and uh, see our logo there. Uh, we post all the episodes and occasionally, you know, I'll like tweet out other like movie related stuff and jokes and whatever. And then on Facebook, uh, same deal, just cinema or Uncanny Cinema on Facebook. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out, like us, follow us, all that shit. Feel free to reach out. Uh, we've had a few listeners make some recommendations in the past. We've brought a couple of them onto the show. We looked at The Beast or The Beast of War, which was a, a war film from the 80s. I'd never heard of. Um, we looked at that one. That one was pretty good. And we looked at Joe versus the Volcano. These boys were on that episode with me. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, was like a, that, one. that was a fan recommendation. So, uh, yeah, always uh, interested in getting those. It might take me several months before we, like, get to it because I always have a slate ready. But, uh, yeah, please uh, let me know if there's anything out there we should be aware of. All right, so that is going to wrap us up for The Collector. Uh, up next, we have a recommendation by one of our semi-regulars, Izzy. She wanted to look at the 1990s movie Adventures in Dinosaur City, which I have never seen, but it seems uh, pretty wacky. So we will see uh, you know, just how fun and just how bad that one is. So uh, join us for Adventures <laughs> in Dinosaur City coming up next. <laughs> 